All right. If you want to make your way back to a seat. It's good to see you. There's a, there's a, uh, it's a small book. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's full of uh, prayers that are for different occasions or um, they're kind of grouped together under different topics. And I was reading one this morning um, that I thought it would be great for us to just pray together as we start uh, our, our time today as a family. And so if you will join me in praying this, oh, my Savior, help me. I'm slow to learn, prone to forget, so weak to climb. I'm in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I am pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my lack of love, my slowness in the heavenly race, my guilty conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while the light shines around me. Take the scales from my eyes, grind to dust, my evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study you, to meditate on you, to gaze upon you, to sit like Mary at your feet, to lean like John on your breast, to appeal like Peter to your love, to count like Paul all things rubbish. Give me increase and progress in grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in a creature what can only be found in my creator. Amen. Well, I hope that on Tuesday you took the opportunity uh, to participate in our governmental processes by voting. And uh, I I don't really want to talk about how you voted or why you did that, but it's one of the uh, great opportunities and responsibilities that we have as citizens here in the United States of America. It's one of the great freedoms that we have to be able to have a say in who governs us and by extension, how that governing takes place and what it looks like and the things that the people that we vote for represent. But what I want us to really see this morning in Romans 13, 1 to 10, is that we don't have ultimate say in who governs us. The Lord has that say. And so, This morning, as we look at Romans 13, 1 to 10, I want to make a couple of sort of uh, precursor kind of statements. The first one is that the timing of this is both incidental and providential. Uh, It would be giving myself far too much credit to say that we sat down like a year ago, and as we were situating our Romans series, we said, you know what we should do? We should put Romans 13, 1 to 10 on the Sunday after we vote. That's not how that happened, but it did happen, and I believe the Lord is uh, sovereign and good to us in that. The next precursor that I, I want to make is that 
over our time together, uh, particularly while I am up here, I am making no statements about particular political parties or individual candidates or uh, things that did or did not happen on Tuesday. Sound good? So if I say something that wells that up inside of you, know that that is you. (laughs) That is not me. The next one is this. Hear me out all the way to the end of this because the things said at the end will help clarify things that are said at the beginning. And things said at the beginning will clarify some of what is said at the end. So if you hear something in the first, you know, seven minutes that you're not a huge fan of, give me the benefit of the doubt until I'm done and then don't be a fan of the whole thing rather than just <laughs> one sentence. The next one is this. Romans 13, 1 to 10 is, uh, specifically 1 through 7, is an idealized statement. Paul's intent here is not to lay out for us exactly how the government does work or exactly how it is that every citizen within any given state at any given time actually does behave themselves. He's laying out for us what should be the come up as we read this broadest of principles for us. There are all kinds of questions that come up as we read this particular passage. I'm going to address some of them at the end. Um, But what Paul is doing is he's giving us a description of what would be the absolute ideal. He is not laying out for us all the details of how that should take place, all the practical pieces of how it should play out or how it did play out in his time and in his setting and in his direct context. This is a descriptive statement of how if everything functioned perfectly, this is how it would look. But we know that things don't function perfectly. So when we read this, it's natural for all of us to have a whole lot of, yeah, but kind of statements or thoughts or questions that rise up for us. The last kind of precursor I want to make is this. I'm going to start with what Romans 13, 1 to 10 says explicitly. And I'm just going to work through the explicit statements that come from the text. And then at the end, I'm going to go back and answer some of the sort of implicit questions that arise from the passage. So we'll work entirely through Romans 13, 1 through 10 directly what it's telling us. So as you think of your questions, just kind of hold them there because we'll go back and pick those up, some of those up at the end. Sound good? Good. I'm going to pray again because it feels necessary today. (laughs) God, thank you uh, for this morning. Lord, for the chance for us to be together and to worship together and to gather around the gospel, Lord, to gather around your grace and your mercy, to gather around your word. Lord, I pray that you would be high and lifted up in here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and praised and honored by all it is that we do, whether that's in our song, as we study your word, Lord, in our interactions with one another, in our heart's disposition before you. God, would you be praised in all it is that we do here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me catch us up just a little bit on the context because it's been a few weeks since we've talked about Romans. In Romans 12, 1 and uh, 2, we started into a new section here of the letter of Romans. And it's all about how it is that these amazing theological truths from Romans 1 all the way through Romans 11 should begin to play themselves out in the life of an individual believer. And kind of the big heading from now until the end of of the book of Romans is this, that a life centered on the gospel is to be a life 
shaped by the gospel. You can think of Romans 12 and Romans 13 almost strictly in terms of relationships. Romans 12, 1 and 2 are all about what a Christian's relationship should be to the Lord, that we present ourselves as living sacrifices in an act of worship continually, rationally. That is the position of a believer before the God who has saved them. Romans 12, 3 through 8, you can kind of think about in terms of what is and the way it is that we should with myself and what the Lord has put in me. It's this explanation of gifts and the way it is that we should steward those and use those. And then beginning in Romans 12, verse 9 down through 21, what should a Christian's relationship be to the church? How is it that we interact with one another? Let love be genuine. Let it be without hypocrisy. And then when you jump into chapter 13, Romans 13, 1 to 7 is about a Christian's relationship to the state to the government, and then 8, 9, and 10 are about a Christian's relationship to society. And so what we're going to see this morning is that the gospel shapes our engagement with the state and with society. So let me just read Romans 13, 1 through 10. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Paul leads off this section, this two-paragraph chunk of Romans, with a commandment or an imperative for any citizen who is a Christian, and it is to submit to submit to the government. What if I don't like the government? Submit. What if I didn't vote for that person? Submit. What if I didn't even get a vote for that person? What if I live in a place where there is no voting? Well, you submit. What if the person that's ruling doesn't match my political leanings or ideas or desires? Submit. But why? Paul gives us that answer. Three times, in fact, he lays out for us why it is that we should submit. And the big overriding idea here is that submission to the government is submission to the Lord. Paul arrives here a specific way. He says, let everyone submit to this kind of statement. Authority except from God. That's the first time he makes this kind of statement. Then he says, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. That's the second time he makes that statement. And then he goes on and he says, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. 
three different times, Paul lays out for us where it is that government actually derives its authority. And therefore, who it is that you're actually submitting to in your submission to the government. The preamble of the Declaration of Independence says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. We get what they're saying, but they're actually coming up a little bit short. The government does not ultimately derive its power from the consent of the governed. The government ultimately derives its power from the Lord who delegates authority over to them. All governmental authority is from God. He delegates and the state or the government is to be a steward of that authority. The Lord is sovereign and he is in control and he has authority over all things in all of the universe. And it is by his grace that he has given us government, whereby he says here, you take this authority and use it for the good and the flourishing of the people over whom you rule. That's the way the government is supposed to function. God has authority. He has delegated some of that authority over to a governing body, and they are supposed to then steward that authority for the good of the people that they govern. When I perform wedding ceremonies, it is, you know, kind of the highlight of the whole thing when at the very end, I begin a sentence by saying, by the power vested in me by the state of Missouri and as a gospel of the minister, or as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't just wake up one day when I took a, a job as a pastor and all of a sudden have this power to wed people. That's not how it works. The government had to give me the ability to do that. They delegated that authority to me and then I steward it in a wedding ceremony. The same is true in terms of how God's ultimate authority interacts with or has been given over to a government. All governmental authority is from God. And so if submission is our end of things and that we submit to the government because we're submitting to the Lord, then what is the government supposed to do? That's what Paul launches into beginning in verse three. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason for it is God's servant an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. Remember, this is an idealized statement. So Paul says in the ideal Here's the role or the nature of the government's authority. That the role of the government is to reward good and punish wrong. Notice something important here. Paul does not say that it is the government's role to determine good and to determine wrong. He says it's the government's role to punish wrong and reward Good. That's because Paul understands something. He understands that there is a created moral law that has been instituted, hardwired into the world by the God who created it. And so what a government is supposed to do is just identify what that universal moral law says and then reward those who uphold it and punish those who break it. Government is to identify that moral law and uphold it. 
Notice something else. In an ideal world, submitting to the government would mean that there is nothing to fear. That you could joyfully make that sort of submission without any hesitation. Because you would know that by submitting, you're A, upholding the moral law that God's put into the world, and B, going to be rewarded for it. In an ideal world, there would be nothing to fear in submission. If you do what is good, you will be rewarded. If you do not do what is good, you would be punished. You see, government is supposed to be an expression of both God's common grace to all of humanity, that he is just good to us and that he's done this, but it's also supposed to be an expression of God's just wrath toward those who do not uphold his moral law. It's by God's grace that he's given us leaders who protect us from those who might want to engage in unchecked evil. It's a picture of God's wrath towards sin that those who transgress his moral law would be justly punished. Paul then bookends this whole statement with another plea for us to submit. Therefore, you must submit, not only because you could be punished, but also because your conscience just knows what's right and wrong, and therefore you should do what your conscience says. Then Paul picks up in verse 6, and he begins to talk about what our responsibility is, not only as citizens, but also as neighbors. Verse 6, for this reason you pay taxes. Verse 7, pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to who you owe taxes, tolls to who you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. As citizens... We are supposed to give what we owe. Paul starts with taxes. He says, pay them. But it's not just a financial obligation. Within our society, we owe respect to certain individuals. We owe honor to certain individuals. That's why on a day like Veterans Day, we make it an intentional point to honor those who deserve honor. If you served in our military to protect us and to help maintain the freedoms that we have as a nation, you deserve to be honored. You've made a sacrifice that you did not have to make, that you made willingly. And so we honor those who are deserving of honor. Our veterans, our family of veterans here, thank you. We owe you that as a society. And so we pay that to you. But let me expand this a little bit here. And I'm gonna use this directly from the words of John Piper uh, he is, or when he made this statement, he was a pastor in Minnesota. And so a lot of this has to do with hunting and fishing because that must be a big deal there. But limits to understand what he's saying. He says, you give what you owe. Speed limits to whom speed limits are due. Building codes to whom building codes are due. Fishing licenses to whom fishing licenses are due. You hunt deer only in season. You keep only five trout in Southeast Minnesota and only one over 16 inches long. That there's no bird trapping or squirrel shooting in the city. Duh. (laughs) Keep your grass cut. No debris behind the garage. No loud mufflers. Emission control devices in place. Seatbelts fastened. Egress windows in the basement. If you live down there, you shovel your front walk. You don't park more than two hours where it's posted. You give what you owe. And as citizens, part of what we owe is a general obedience to all of the laws of our society. That's raising questions in some of your minds, which I will answer in a little bit. But we are to give what we owe. Why? Because our submission to the government is submission to God. And because if we don't submit, we can be justly punished. But also because our conscience will condemn us before the Lord. 
As citizens, we give what we owe. As neighbors, we are to be directed by love. That picks up in verse eight. Do not owe anyone except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You owe more to this place where we live than to merely obey the rules. You owe something to the people that you live alongside, not just to those who rule over you. And that thing that you owe is love. Paul gives a list of commands straight out of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment. They are summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. We obey those things not only because God's told us what we should and should not do, but also because to not obey those would be unloving to your neighbor. To commit adultery is unloving to your neighbor. To steal is unloving to your neighbor. To murder is unloving to your neighbor. We could extend these to where Christ extends them in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just about murder, but to hate, to harbor anger in your heart toward your neighbor, that's not loving. To look lustfully on another individual is not loving toward your neighbor. Any of us who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ are to mirror the life of Christ. And in all he did, he was directed by love. So in all we do in our society, we ought to be directed by love. Let me give one more thought here. As Christians, we cannot abdicate our responsibility to love to the government, which means this. We cannot be content to say, well, I voted for a person who said they were going to implement some policies that seem kind of loving to me. Now I don't owe anybody anything. It's the government's job to love and care for those people. It's the government's responsibility. We're at church to do this, that, or the other. We also can't abdicate it to the kind of corporate church, if you will. As an individual Christian, it's not enough to say, well, I think my church engages with the poor. I think my church is concerned about fill-in-the-blank issue in my community. We're called to do that as individuals because we are the church. If you want your church to be concerned about the poor, you be concerned about the poor. If you want the government to be concerned about the well-being of those around us, you be concerned about the well-being of those around you. You, me, we are called to love, to actively, intentionally, visibly, regularly, consistently love the people around us. Should we vote that way? Yes, but is that the end of it for us? Absolutely not. I would say it's barely even the start. This kind of action on our part ultimately fulfills God's moral law. There's the text, one through 10. I'm gonna go back and answer some questions now. There are questions that, that just jump off the page as you read this. You don't even have to like really be thinking all that hard to immediately have some of these following questions. The first one's this. Are all governments instituted by God? What about the really bad ones? What about Hitler, Stalin, Assad, and regimes like that? Surely they weren't put in place by God. As hard as it is to stand up here and say this, yes, all governmental authority 
is instituted by God. Since God is sovereign, he is sovereign over all things. I want to give you a few biblical examples of this. Uh, I could pick a number of these. I'm just going to go with three of them. All three come directly out of the Old Testament. The first is Jeroboam. He was the first king in Israel after Israel and Judah split into two separate kingdoms, the north. Rehoboam ends up being the king in Judah in the south. Jeroboam becomes the king of Israel in the north. And it is Jeroboam who ultimately leads Israel into the uh, immorality that's going to cause their exile. It's Jeroboam who begins to set up all these high places and shrines and lead Israel to worship someone other than Yahweh, the Lord. He's one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. And this is what we're told about his rise to power, 1 Kings 12, 15. That it was a turn of events that came from the Lord to carry out his will. That's hard to swallow. Do you mean that God put into power the very person that would cause Israel all that sin and then to go into exile? Yes, and I say that not because it sounds good, but because 1 Kings 12, 15 literally tells me that's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar. The Israelites are carried into exile by the Babylonians eventually. The Babylonian king was a, a wicked man who wanted to stamp out Israel's culture and their religion. And in the middle of that exile, we're told that Daniel stops to praise the Lord. And in Daniel 2.21, this is what it says. He, the Lord, changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes them, including the really bad one that Daniel was currently under. Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, Paul already told us in Romans 9, verse 17, that Pharaoh was brought into power according to the will of the Lord. For what reason? To display the Lord's power and proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. All that hardship, all that oppression, all the slavery, really instituted by God? We're told so explicitly, both in Exodus and in Romans. So are all governments really instituted by God? Yes, and that has implications for us. It means that our trust in the sovereignty of God has to extend to the overarching structures that exist around us. We may not understand why so-and-so is president or why a certain governmental issue is playing out the way it is, and that's okay. We can trust in the sovereignty of God, that by his goodwill and pleasure, he is doing what he knows is best for the global proclamation of his power and his glory, and that he does not need my stamp of approval to do what he knows is best. It means that whether we're in North Dakota or North Korea, Annapolis or Afghanistan, a monarchy or a democracy, we submit to the government because doing so is submission to God, which immediately raises another question. Okay, so sometimes you get these really bad governing bodies or these really bad regimes. What are we supposed to do when the government doesn't uphold its responsibility to reward good and punish evil according to God's moral law? Do I still submit? Is that still my responsibility? The simple answer here is no. That like Peter and John, when they're on trial for sharing the gospel in the book of Acts, we're to look at the society around us and proclaim we must obey God rather than people. Remember, your submission to the government is submission to the Lord. So if submitting to the government calls into question your ability to submit to the Lord, something has to give. We need to know when 
how and why to dissent to the government. Dissension to the government is not about personal disagreement, but about a higher submission to God. Let me give you some examples. Jot down Exodus chapter one. You can go back and read these full accounts. I'm gonna be pretty brief. These Hebrew midwives are told that when they're helping an Israelite woman to deliver a baby, if the baby is a male, they're supposed to kill it. If it's a female, they can let it live. Well, that would break God's moral law, right? I am not supposed to kill. I'm not supposed to murder. So what do the Hebrew midwives do? They dig their heels in and they say, no, I won't do it. It's like a German Gestapo knowing where Jews were hiding and just letting them stay there. It would not be right to murder these individuals. That would break God's moral law. So I simply will not do it. I'm going to dissent. Daniel chapter six, there's a decree that goes out that no one is supposed to pray to anyone or petition anyone other than the king. Well, that goes against who we are as those who love the Lord. I'm supposed to pray to God. I'm not supposed to pray to that man, to that individual that's in power. So what does David do, or Daniel do? He digs his heels in and he says, no, I'm going to pray. This would be like a believer in Pakistan who knows they're not supposed to go to worship, that they could be killed or imprisoned for doing so and saying, you know what? My submission is to something higher than this government authority that says I'm not supposed to worship. So I'm going to worship and just going and doing it anyway. In Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were told to bow down and worship something other than the Lord. Well, that's idolatry. And so they say, we won't do it. And if we burn, we burn. You throw us in the furnace, that's totally fine. Our God has the ability to save. And even if he doesn't, I still won't bow down and worship something other than him. So would be like a believer in North Korea refusing to bow down to their president's picture, which is something that they're supposed to do every time they see one. A believer saying, I won't do it. I will not bow down to that. Jot down Esther chapter five. The lives of millions of people were at stake. The Jews were going to be literally exterminated. She doesn't make a refusal to take part in killing the Jewish people. That would not have been something that she had to carry out. Instead, she breaks a different law in order to put that unjust law to an end. She goes in before the king uninvited, which should have brought about her own death. Like Harriet Tubman saying, Harriet Tubman saying this whole slavery deal endangers the lives of millions of people. So I'm going to work against it. I'm going to shuttle people to freedom. In each of these cases, they didn't dissent because they disagreed. They did so because their primary submission was to the Lord. When they were asked to carry out something that was contrary to his moral law, they said no. When they were asked not to worship, they said, I will. When they were Uh, When they saw something that was going on that was a threat to the lives or the well-being of millions of people, they said no, but also see the way they did it. They were aware of the consequences of their actions. They understood that if a government is already not operating the way it's supposed to, then even if I do the right thing, I'm probably going to be punished. I will be thrown into the lion's den. I will be tossed in to the fiery furnace. The king could kill me for going into his presence uninvited. They didn't try to raise a huge fuss. They committed themselves to personal acts of humble obedience 
to the Lord. Personal acts of humble obedience to the Lord. And they never do so in a rash manner. All of those actions in Daniel 6 and Daniel 3 and Exodus 1 and Esther 5 come about as a, act, or as a result of prayer, oftentimes with fasting. They're rational, logical, thought-out decisions, not emotional or visceral responses to something. They took the time to figure out, where does my ultimate obedience lie in this? Okay, to the Lord. And this law or this practice calls me to do something contrary to what would be submissive to God and his will, so I'm not gonna do it. Now, how do I go about resisting? David went into his room and prayed by himself. He didn't walk out into the street and pray there in sort of like a high-handed, look at me sort of way. He made a personal act of obedience, which raises another question then. Okay, so if we understand that all government authority is instituted by God and we understand how it is and when it is that we're supposed to dissent, how do we then best engage with our government as citizens and with our society as neighbors? Well, remember, the gospel shapes our engagement with the state and society. This is what Jeremiah 29 says. The Israelites have been taken into captivity. It says this, this is what the Lord says to all the exiles he deported or departed uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. We're to want the best for this place where we live, and we're to pursue it, to work for it, to be engaged in making it happen. So let me give just three kind of quick encouragements for how it is that we can do that. The first one is pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that prayers, our petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Jeremiah 29 goes on to say that when the city that we live in thrives, we will thrive. We're to pray. That's, that's kind of the baseline way that Christians can engage in the good uh, nature and goodwill of the society that they live in. We don't pray so that we can get our way. We're not praying so that someone in power does the thing we want them to do. We pray because we want this place to thrive. We pray because when society, when the world falls under the moral law of God, humans can flourish in the best way possible. And when this place thrives, we thrive. We're able to live in quiet godliness, obeying the will of the Lord and ushering others toward the cross. Pray. Number two is participation. Vote. Run for office. In our context, part of pursuing the good of this place where we live is engaging in the actual governmental processes that exist in our country. Be personally engaged and invested. If you're going to seek the welfare of the city in which we live, we're going to have to work for it. We don't merely push off the good we want to see to the government. There's a whole history of Christian individuals taking it upon themselves to correct an ill in their society. George Mueller arrived in London in the 1800s and he saw just the unbelievable crisis of orphans in that city. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start orphanages. I'm not just going to yell at the government to start orphanages. I will do it. And he revolutionized 
the way that orphans were cared for in England. William Wilberforce saw the slave trade in England, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work to put an end to that. Martin Luther King Jr. saw the civil rights issues in America, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give my life toward putting an end to that. Michael Chitwood saw the clean water crisis in Africa, and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come up with a way to get clean water to those kids. Carol Graham saw the ills and the evil of abortion in the Northland right here. And she said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work to put an end to that by providing an abortion alternative clinic here in the Northland. We're going to have to work for that, to be personally engaged and invested. Change ultimately comes from our society and the top follows the bottom. People in power want to be in power and they want to stay in power. And so if our society at large makes a significant shift in one direction, the top will shift with it. My arms can only go where my legs take them. My head can only go where my legs take it. I'm not trying to be overly simplistic, but in a democracy like we have, if you want to affect the greatest change at the top, change the bottom, which means for Christians, evangelize and disciple. Don't shirk your responsibility. What could be more loving to your neighbors than to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What could be more loving to the place where we live than to point it to the God who created us and who has told us exactly how we best function and flourish? I believe firmly that that's the fastest way to impact our culture. If you don't like where America is headed culturally, don't be grumpy on social media or throw your hands up in the air in resignation. Roll up your sleeves, share the gospel, expand the kingdom of God, disciple immature believers in their knowledge of the word of the Lord. That's our job. And we're not to push that off. And the last thing is to maintain perspective. We must remember who ultimately controls not just our personal lives, not just our city or state or country, but the universe we live in. When we forget that, we freak out because elections don't go our way. When we forget that, we look just like the rest of the world and how they engage in political matters. When we forget that, we look like we don't have the great hope of the gospel and the power of the ruler of the universe behind, around, and in front of us. We must ultimately remember who saves and redeems. The unborn, the impoverished, the refugee, the immigrant, the homeless, the widow, the orphan, the marginalized, the oppressed. Jesus is the one who loves and cares for each and every one of those fully, perfectly, and without the need to be reelected because he's king of kings and Lord of lords. That means regardless of your position politically on these matters, we don't put all our hope in the government to make everything right in relation to those who are disenfranchised or marginalized. It is prideful to say that our ingenuity is the only thing that can make all of this work out best. Do you vote? Yes. Do you invest? Yes. Do you engage? Yes. Do you work to change the culture around you into something that honors the Lord and his moral standards? Yes. And then you get on your knees And you look upward and forward to the one who's ultimately in control of all things, who ultimately loves all people and will ultimately make everything right with perfect and eternal justice. And you beg him to build that kingdom here. Maintain perspective. We must always remember where our true citizenship lies. You've been transferred from Adam to Christ, from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of Christ. And that means you live in attention. You are here now for a time, and we're to seek the welfare of this place, but it is not your ultimate home.
You are right now a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. And that means you can submit here because submitting here is submitting there. That means you can dissent without fear of the earthly punishment that may come in those moments when dissension is necessary because dissension here would be obedience there. It means you can engage here because engagement here makes this place look more and more like your true heavenly home. We long for Christ to build his kingdom here because, it's, uh, because that makes these earthly kingdoms look more and more like his eternal kingdom. And as followers of Christ, that should be our great desire. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Our great desire for this state that we live in should be that to the maximum degree possible, it begins to look like the kingdom that we will inhabit for all of eternity, which means we vote for the people who uphold holistically what the Bible has to say about morality and about how a society should function and about what God's moral law is, but it also means that we engage in a practical everyday level in order to see those realities come to pass. We don't just push them off on the government. We don't just push them off on the church. And it also means that we pray. We pray diligently, regularly, passionately to see the kingdom of God expand in this earthly kingdom here. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but America might be long gone when that finally happens. Or he might come back tomorrow. And wherever it is that we're living in that moment, I want to know that I did everything that I could, that we as followers of Christ did everything that we could to both individually glorify him in the way that we live, but also societally glorify him in the way it is that we tried to see our world look before him. That requires that we pray. It requires that we participate and it requires that we maintain perspective, that God would build his kingdom here. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship together. You can stand up.